everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bits in between. And welcome to this episode of Twelve or Two, the Human Factors Podcast. As you will see, I'm not in my um, usual space. We've um, firstly, we, we it was highlighted in one of the past episodes that you could see the Human Factors Podcast logo in my funky neon sign, um, but actually back to front. Um, that was slightly annoying from my behalf. But one of these things that you know you, I didn't realize until afterwards when I had the, um, the the mirroring on the on the camera the wrong way around. It just shows that um, technology can trip us up even when we think everything is running smoothly. But talking about running smoothly, we want to talk today a bit more about the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. Um, for those of you in the UK, this is our professional home. Um, and really, I'm quite keen to get more insights. And uh, with some of the interviews that we've had in the past, you know that we've been talking to sort of key members and key, and key people within the CIHF about what happens. And today, it wants to give us that bit more insight into how it runs. For those of you who are not aware, the CIHF runs um, a lot of events, a lot of activities, everything from Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, which we've just recently attended uh, for, for this year, as well as um, everything from webinars, meet meetups, and it also publishes guidance, best practice. But as one of the largest uh, Ergonomics and Human Factors organizations in the world, you'd think the the cast would uh, the, the staff would be a cast of, if not hundreds, then certainly high tens. But actually, the staff is is a the number of staff is a relatively small number, and when you consider the huge amount they deliver, I still find that absolutely fascinating. So today we're going to meet one of the um, the one of the the, the newer stars of the, um, of the of the staff cast, um, and we talked to Ben Peachy. The uh, I keep on saying relatively new CEO, but he's actually been here for quite a while. So Ben, thank you for joining us, and welcome to uh, welcome to Twelve Two. Thanks, Barry. Yes, I, I have to admit, I, I joined in September last year, and I think it was about two months ago that I stopped pretending I was new. I, I think I was in a meeting with someone. <laughs> I said, I, I, "You know, I'm new to this job." And I thought, "Am I new?" Yeah, I'm not new anymore. But, um, but as, as we'll learn, it's been a it's a, been a great journey so far. Fantastic. So let's get stuck straight into it then. Um, what is what is your current role, and what does that mean to you on a on a day to day basis? Sure, yes. Yeah. So I am yeah, the chief executive, as you said, of the Chartered Institute for Ergonomics and Human Factors. Um, so yeah, my job is, is to lead the team. So we have a, a team of five staff, um, uh, including myself, and then we have a couple of contractors as well who work who, who work with us. Um, in terms of things that I do, um, I think the main thing is that my job is to help the trustees of which you're one to fulfill their duties as custodians of the organization so it is uh, you know that the institute is a member organization it's it, it's it's a charity that is not for profit and it's run to uh, in, in the interests of its members but also in the interests of advancing uh, the profession so 
I am accountable to the trustees, basically. So that's the, my number one thing. So um, I have a fortnightly meeting with the president, which is your, yourself at the moment. Um, and uh, you, you know, so started off with Alex Stedman, your, your predecessor, who's still also on our executive committee. Um, the trustees meet four times a year. So uh, in I'm, I'm in a sort of ongoing cycle of preparing materials for those meetings then acting on the decisions that get taken on, on those in those meetings um, we've got a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks time so the back end of last week I was putting the agenda together for that meeting um, and one of the key things because we've just had our member elections um, we have uh, five new uh, trustees uh, coming on to the what we call the council uh, so this meeting in June we're going to be doing some trustee training so that's one of the key things I'm working on at the moment is putting in doing the trustee training so I think that's the sort of first key thing that I do secondly um, my role is to build a more effective organization so at the moment we're in the process of getting ISO 9001 certification uh, which I think is really going to help us improve how we run the organization um, and I think you know, I'm almost at the back end of a process of, of you know, the in Institute in various titles being around for well, nearly 75 years. It's our 75th anniversary next year. But I would say it's probably in only the last 10 to 15 years that it's really thought we need to be a professional organization. Uh, and, and so I'm playing a part in, in that development. So we're as I said, pursuing ISO. So one of the things uh, I, I did recently was just sort of looking at the things that we do and, and describing them as products and services. And I think that was a really healthy exercise to do. And we'll be presenting that work to the trustees in June. Um, we're just in the process of putting uh, or improving our performance review system. So creating a new uh, template for our performance development uh, for our staff to help them in their career development and to help them know what their goals are in their jobs. And then the other thing I do on that front as well is I engage um, in a number of uh, CEO networks. So there are lots of professional organizations out there. So my peers are people who run other member bodies. So I'm, I'm in a couple of um, uh, yeah, CEO networking groups um, and I find those tremendously valuable um, uh, in the same way, I guess, as, 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 as the members of the, the Institute find being able to network with their um, sort of peers I network through my peers there and learn a lot that way. Um, so, for example, I've just been asked to um, or consider joining a steering group that's fo focusing on equality, diversity and inclusion with other CEOs, which I think will be tremendously valuable for me. Cool. Um, I also support the team. So obviously part of my job is providing direction to the team, helping them ensure that they have the tools, the resources, um, the understanding of what they're working on and how it fits into the bigger picture of our strategy and annual work plan, which I'm responsible for, and then helping them with any decisions or any input they need from me. So I think that's a key part of what I do is helping them to do their jobs well. Um, and two other key areas, so relationship building. So I, I need to look outside the, the organization. So a good example of this is the degree apprenticeship. So uh, there's been a group of uh, uh, practitioners who are mainly sort of members, but have, have been working together to develop the human factors specialist degree apprenticeship. And excitingly, um, you know, that's been sort of a, a group of people who work uh, employers, um, but also working with some universities. And we just got the news late last week 
that um, the funding application for that has been approved, which is very exciting. So it now means the universities, which is Coventry, Cranfield and Loughborough, can now move forward with developing the human factor specialist master's degree apprenticeship. Um, and then, you know, the idea is, is that companies will then put apprentices into that scheme. And so, you know, I've played a role of really sort of trying to support that. You know, I, I wasn't involved in the team who put it together. So Chris Vance from MBDA deserves a lot of credit. It was he was the driving force behind it. Uh, and there are you know, a number of other people and other employers and universities that supported him. But as us as an institute, it's in our interest that that's successful. So we're trying to lean in and support it. So that's one example. And then finally, um, uh, I do what I call learning and engaging. So, uh, you know, I'm fairly new um, to human factors as I'm sure we'll explore more uh, in, in this podcast. So I'm trying to build my human factors knowledge reading The Agonomist that's put together um, by my colleague that many of you know, Tina Worthy, and I was a guest on, on the, the, the podcast late last year. Uh, so reading that, engaging in social media. And I'm trying to sort of now transition a bit more to just sort of being a passive uh, learner, to being more of an active learner. So in, in the last few weeks, uh, those of you who are active on LinkedIn, you might have seen my posts a bit more. And, and, and that's certainly part of my job to be out there championing the human factors profession, both within uh, the, the profession, but also those we want to engage with. No, you, it's interesting to see, well, firstly, the, the LinkedIn piece, which we, I guess we can come on to a bit later as well, mm -hmm. that it does seem to have taken on a bit more of a, a life of actually being, you can actually act, actively engage on it more so than I think historically, it seems to have revamped itself without changing, which I think is, is a bit I don't know whether that's a product of the um, of the pandemic or or whatever, but it does seem to be a slightly better place. But, uh... Yeah, look, I think so, and I, I think it, it is, and it, it, it's really interesting. You know, I feel very lucky um, joining the organisation at the, the time that I'm I'm joining it because I'm building on some good successes. You know, so we, you know, my predecessor put a lot of effort into building that that presence on on social media um which i think was really important especially during covid mm. um which was a challenging time for everyone but um you know certainly member organizations uh you know i, I was in a working in another member organization at the time and where face-to-face -face engagement was the number one value add that we delivered so we had to change that up and i and i you know i don't know obviously in detail but i know you know, the, the Institute also went through that process of how do we morph what we do during COVID. And I think I think it's really important um, the, that you're out there talking about what's going on in the profession. So I think LinkedIn is a, is a really key um, mm -hmm. engagement tool that we have. So you, you mentioned that, um, obviously, human factors and ergonomics is, wasn't your first love. Um, you've you, you stumbled upon us almost to a certain extent. How did, how did that happen? How did you, you know, how I've got no idea how you go and uh, and find a CEO role. Um, how, how did that happen? And how did you stumble upon us? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and the very simple answer is, is it's sort of the right place at the right time. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, it, you know, and that's happened quite often in my career is that I'm a big believer in you, 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 you make your own opportunities to an extent, mm. but there's also a timing issue. Um, so I've been, I won't, you know, I think we're going to come back to sort of my, my career background, but 
when this came along, yeah, I, I've been working in member bodies since 2005, and it, it really is sort of in, yeah, I, it's it's my profession, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking for a member association job, um, and I found this job advert on LinkedIn uh, for so I had the right sort of search criteria in place to for it to pop up in front of me. Um, but I'd never heard of the Institute before I saw that, mm-hmm. that advert. Um, and yeah, it, it just so happened I was looking and, and I think sort of, I think I even, you know, I've said this to, to a couple of people since I've started is, is that it was the right job for me at the time I was in my career. And I believe that I'm the sort of the right type of leader for the Institute in, in the, in the space that it has reached. So yep. Um, it meant that when I had my interview, um, I was able to say the things that the, the trustees from the interview panel thought, yes, that's what we need. So, I, yeah, I feel very lucky. And as I learned more about the, the organisation during that interview process, there was a real values alignment. So um, at its core, um, the profession is about helping people. Mm-hmm. And I think my um, that really aligns with my values and, and, and sort of what my career has been about as well, obviously, but in a slightly different way to human factors. Yeah. So with that career path, then, how, where, where did you come from? How did you, how did you get to where to, to meeting us? Yeah. So when I was sort of thinking about this is, is that I think there are, you know, going back to that, that values and purpose piece, I think that's been the core thing is, is that I've been driven to work in the things that mean something to me throughout my career. And I think that's partly been driven by the support I got in, 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 in my family life. Um, my, uh, yeah, I had a, a, a privileged upbringing, to be honest, you know, um, um, uh, you know, my parents sent me to a private school, I went to university. Um, and those things are important to me, actually, because I, of my extended family, I think the first person who went to a private school was my sister, who was three years older than me, and then myself, none of my cousins did. Um, uh, my parents certainly didn't. My parents didn't have higher education either. But my parents were really focused on giving us opportunities that they didn't have um you know and and uh, and i feel very lucky uh, to be in that and, and and as part of that was they really encouraged us to make the decisions that made sense for us from a fairly young age which i think is a lucky position to be in as well they weren't trying to push me into any particular profession it was you know they just wanted me to be successful and do the best i could Mm. um and so i think i i wanted to say that because i think that's been really important about the sort of the the journey i've been on and the two things that really drove me are public service and sustainable development. So in I, I was into sort of politics in my teens. I, I did a politics A-level, um, but I was also into sustainable development. I didn't know it was called that at the time, but um, I, you know, I think my first political act was about 11 years old, buying a CND badge. So this was back <laughs> in the early 80s when uh, those of you who were young at that time, that you, you would have, you know, there were sort of, you know, yeah, there was still that threat of nuclear Armageddon, and you know, there would be media about that. You know, um, and I was really motivated. You know, it was all the time of Greenham Common and things like that. And, and 
I was motivated by that. So I, I joined CND. After that, I joined Greenpeace in my teens because, again, you know, um, it, it, and it was all there were simple drivers to that. And I remember I was in a uni, a, an environmental group at university, and we had in my in my first year, I went along, and I was actually a bit saddened. So you know, you join these societies at university. I was at Hull University. There must be you know, I don't know, eight, ten thousand students there. And the first meeting of this group, I think there was eight of us in the room. And in some ways, I felt a bit sad about that going, you know, even this was 1992, I think, mm-hmm. even at that time, you know, th- th- there was um, a growing understanding of the climate crisis. Um, and I remember in that room, we all asked to say why we were there. And, and for me, it was very simple is a sort of, you know, if you think of your own personal life, if there's a, a a leak in the roof of your house you fix it and the planet is our home and so if there's something wrong with it we should fix it and and so that's been a driver for me so anyway so sorry a long-winded way of getting into my career but i think yeah. it's important around the decisions i've taken so uh, and going back to the public service thing i decided i wanted to work for the bbc um at about the age of 16 and so i just laser focused on that and that's because i really believed in their public service remit and i still do i think it is one of the um gifts this country has given to the world that we can be really proud of and it really saddens me that in many ways it's being eroded um Mm. and if you take the world service it is just so respected around the world and I think we should invest in it. But anyway, I wanted to work for that institution. I did. Um, I became, I, I had an entry level job where I worked in a research library. My first job was um, basically stamping new books with this belongs to the BBC, putting <laughs> the spine labels on uh, and, and putting them away. But then once I was inside, I then aggressively tried to find my my place, and I landed in online journalism. Um, it was the early days of the internet, um, and it was possible to get into that, and and that's what I did. Um, it always amazes me that, that the first ever BBC sort of news website was for the 1997 general election, which isn't that long ago, given <laughs> where you think online is now. So I wasn't. Uh, working, I started off on intranets at that time, and then I joined BBC News Online about 1999. I worked for Panorama, which was, you know, the flagship uh, program, and I was essentially what's called their interactive producer. Um, and I was actually making podcasts before they were even called podcasts. We one of the things we did that I really enjoyed is after, yeah, so long form journalism. There was a program each week, 40 minutes long, and then we would invite viewers to send their questions in. And then the day after, we would do either an audio or, and also video, in, incredibly, at that time. Um, and we would do an interview with one of the protagonists from the programme. Um, and I loved it. That, that was really good. So I did that. Um, I left the BBC uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I wanted to earn a bit more money. Um, and secondly, because I'd almost re- reached a ceiling, is that to get on, I wanted to get into sort of management and, and progress in my career. And to do that, I, I would have needed to branch out into radio or television um, because, yeah, to, to get on, you needed to sort of have experience across all of those. And I didn't really I didn't really have the passion for it. And this goes back to sort of passion being a driver for me. So um, it felt a, a, the right time to leave. Uh, I then uh, found a job in Arup. Um, uh, in doing corporate communications, so a lot of ex-journalists go into communications, 
And in Arab, um, and obviously we have members in Arab, so I've sort of come full circle a bit, but um, Arab uh, was a really good landing spot for me because I was very institutionalized in the BBC, but Arab has very similar values to the BBC, actually. It's, um, it's, it's obviously not, um, it doesn't have a license fee, but it, it's sort of held in trust, even though it's a profit-making company. Even in, And um, they had sort of passionate engineers in the way that the BBC had passionate journalists. So really good. I was there for a couple of years. Um, but conversely, the thing that made it a nice landing ground made me want to leave it quite quickly and that it was very similar to the BBC and I'd almost wanted to get away from that kind of an organization and, and try something new so it was a really good I guess what I would call stepping stone out um, uh, but you know after about 18 months I sort of felt uh, yeah it was it was too similar in some ways and I wanted to do something different and that's where I got into member member associations and, and, and member bodies and again by chance um, there was a job uh, I can't remember if it was advertised or someone told me about it um, with an organization called the International Council on Mining and Metals. Um, so a member body for um, 20 or so of the, the, the world's largest mining companies, Rio Tinto, Anglo-America. Um, but the, there were two reasons why I wanted to do that job. It was nothing to do with mining. One, it was their, their remit was around mining and sustainable development. So it was going and working for an organization um, that was focused on Im improving contribution to sustainable development. And secondly, they had a small staff and I felt that I wanted to progress and learn more. And I felt if I was in a small communications team, which was one and a half people when I joined uh, me and someone supporting me, I could run, I could get more experience, you know, running the budget for that team and those kind of things. So I was very, I was so pleased I got that job. I was there for 10 years and um, I realized as I got in that actually working in member bodies was perfect for me in that mm. I, I love consensus building. I love working with people. It was, it was the right profession for me and, and it, it always happened by accident. Um, but yeah, I, I was working on a topic I was really passionate about I was the organization was growing so you know I grew the team from one and a half people to I think um, we had five people in the communications team when when I left bigger budget did a lot of sort of um, raised the profile of the organization so really good time for me came to the end of my lifespan there and I, I do think um, member bodies are quite cyclical uh, right. and so you almost it's almost as if you run the same year over and over again because you have your sort of uh, you know the same sort of deadline so if you take the charting sheet we have our conference every year we do the four trustee meetings and i do believe there's a sell by date in in the you know you can come in help drive an organization forward but at some point it will become stale again and it'll be right for you to move on but also right for the organization to bring someone else in and have new ideas and i'd reached that point with icmm uh went into i couldn't find the right next job for me to be honest um because it was quite niche and so i actually went into consulting working for myself which was way out of my comfort zone um but actually i really enjoyed um uh, and i i, I built up um, some good clients. I had a couple on retainer. Um, uh, I was working with an organization called Cares, for example, who 
um, again, very niche, who did certification for reinforcing steel. Um, uh, but really good organization to work with, really lovely people. And then I was headhunted for another role, and it was a really tough decision because my business was starting to take off and I could have carried on. But it was one of those nice moments in my life where I felt that I couldn't make a wrong decision. Um, and I went and joined this body called the Entrepreneurs Organization. At the time, they had something like 14,000 individual members, so very different to ICMM. Um, and in 60 countries around the world, so uh, um, uh, sort of international as well. And their DNA was all about learning and growth uh, and, and helping entrepreneurs to be successful. So again, aligned with myself. But the thing that, that made me, I, I guess, laugh is, is that that shows you how very different member bodies are the same is that in my ICMM job interview, one of the things I said, because it was a communications, I said, yeah, one of the problems we've got is we're the best kept secret in the world. And so, you know, I, I answered that. And then 12 years later, I go to my entrepreneurs organization interview and they said exactly the same thing. One of our problems is we're the best kept secret in the world. And um, actually it's quite a nice, question to answer as a comms person because that not not everyone can be the best kept secret it's all about knowing who your audience is and 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 knowing the relevance and i remember one of the things i said to eo that i've said at the uh one of the council meetings that, that became a bit of a, a, a running joke was is that um whenever i you know I, I sort of say to our trustees or staff going right who is this piece of work for or I ban the answer of everyone. Um, yeah. You know, it, nothing is for for all seven billion people in the world. You need to engage with the people who are important to what you're doing. Um, so yeah, so that that was EO and and yeah, apologies. I know I can sort of talk about this stuff on and on, but um, uh, so I left there uh, during COVID. Um, in some ways, that probably wasn't a wise idea because the opportunities weren't great at that time. I went and worked for a really exciting um, uh, startup uh, com uh, company, so very different role um, working, but in the sustainability space, who, um, who've who got this technology uh, around environmental DNA, where basically they do tracking of animals by taking samples from water or the earth because all animals leave traces of DNA. It's a really fascinating um space um uh, around sort of biodiversity management and biodiversity conservation um so i enjoyed my time there it wasn't the right role for me um the sort of what the organization did was was the right thing and you know i, I helped there but it, it wasn't the right sort of role for me long term so it made sense for me to do that and that's when i was looking again and, and that's where i found the chartered institute Oh, and then obviously we then give you the challenge of we're the best kept secret that's a really interesting um per perception i mean obviously i've known you now for for about eight months or slightly more than that the but it's interesting seeing that them threads that we saw um, through the recruitment process. Clearly, they've got they're so grounded throughout your career that, that, that that's that's really cool. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to find out a bit more about what you actually you know how you found the job so far in the CIHF, but also what what we're going to do driving things forward. So we'll be back right after this. 
You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back today. We're talking to Ben Peachy, the the new or less new now uh, CEO of the Charity Institute of Economics and Human Factors, or CIEHF. So, Ben, as, as we sort of alluded to, you've been in post now eight months, nearly a year. Um, we were sort of um, suggesting just before this recording side that's been a very quick period of time, um, and we've had to really hit the ground running. So, how have you found the the first eight months? I've loved it. It's um, yeah, as I said earlier, it was, it was right place, right time for me, and um, I think right place, right time for the organisation as well. So it's come together. So it's flown by, uh, and I think it's flown by because I've I've, I've loved it. Um, I was given you know clear expectations, and uh, you know I, I did want to sort of labour this point because. I think you know there's a lot of talk around sort of mental health and well-being around the challenges of remote working and um and i think all of us in our jobs need to know what we're doing what the boundary conditions are what's expected of us mm -hmm. and the more we understand that the more likely you are to succeed and you know so yes i i've loved it because i've been able to um you know i guess use my strengths uh to to to, to the, the the you know the best ability which is a nice place to be but i i am very thankful to um the trustees the staff of the organization in the 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 expectation i was given during the interview process have largely played out um so the challenges that i was told about are the challenges i'm working on uh, yes, once you get in the door, you learn new things about what's been going on. But there were no major surprises or, or gremlins there, and 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 I think that's really important. And and you know, and I'm sure yeah, you know, human factors people know this. And I think we'll come on to some of the challenges for the organisation. But human factors people have in their DNA to think about helping others do well. And supporting them so coming in that's the feeling i've got from the staff and the trustees as well they've reached out to me they've asked me how it's going uh and and i think there's a real opportunity for it for the profession as well there because we think like that and we know that so many people are struggling in so many walks of life is how can we use though that skills and experience to help others and grow the profession so i think that was really important um I've inherited a great team uh, that, you know, that's always really helpful is, you know, I haven't had to come in and just almost sort of redraw what they're we're working together with the team on making it clearer. Yeah, you know, we're reviewing job roles, for example, and role descriptions. I think one of our weaknesses has been is, is that because the team are so committed, um, one of the things I've said to them is, is we almost have like a whole, all hands to the pump mentality, um, which means is that everyone will get stuck in and make sure things happen. That's wonderful. 
The flip side of that is, is that sometimes we're not using people's skills and experience in the most optimum way. So that's one of the things that we, we're working on. But that's a good thing to work on uh, and to, to make us stronger. And then the other thing that was really good was that the organization has made some good decisions. You know, we spoke earlier about the sort of that, you know, more focus on the profile of the organization um, during COVID, which I think was good. Um, but then there's been some good infrastructure decisions. So we decided to invest in learning. We've got a learning management system. We're about to launch our learning pathways, which I think are going to be really good for the organization and the profession. Um, and we've also invested in our digital infrastructure as well. So we've got a new um, CRM, uh, you know, a customer relationship management system. Uh, I'll come back to that a bit later and some of the things I want to do for the organization. But those are decisions that were made and actually largely implemented before I arrived. So my job is then to almost make sure we make the most of those good decisions. So that's uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for as well. No, and, and as you sort of highlighted, we've we as an organisation are going through almost a step change where we've been a great membership body, membership organisation, whereas now we, we, we're almost facing a period or potential period of quite rapid growth of mm. basically everything that we do. You, you sort of went, you highlighted that. Um, so what do you think the, the biggest challenges are that you face then with, with this changing organisation? Yeah, sure. So a couple of things, really. And I, I wrote about this in, in, in my last Agonomist article. And, and I guess going back to that sort of uh, communications profession of repeating the same messages uh, is, the, is the lack of data. Um, so uh, I think one of the core, you know, you the sort of phrase sort of the, the DNA. So human factors, people, it's in their DNA to have evidence based decision making. And I think that, you know, I'm oversimplifying it, but essentially speaking, I've come into an institute that's almost been driven by what I would call hunch-based decision-making. Uh, you know, we're lucky. We have very passionate volunteer members. And uh, again, I'm probably oversimplifying, but it's almost we've got a culture of going, you know, there's someone has a good idea and, and it is a, usually a good idea. And then we act on it without really thinking it through. Um, uh, and so I really think we need to improve the data and insights that we have. Um, and uh, so I, I'm putting a real effort into that, um, both in terms of understanding who our membership is. So, you know, how many people do we have who work in the healthcare sector? How many in defense? How many who are in consulting working across the piece? Um, I've challenged the sector groups that we've had to, you know, one of the questions I've asked the sector group chairs is, is do we have critical mass of membership in your sector? And most of them have said they don't know. And, and to be fair, that's not their job to know. It's my job of the staff team to give them the, the insights to help them uh, have a view of that. So I think that is the number one sort of challenge I have is to sort of make sure we're gathering that data, turning it into insight, and then turning it into action. And then the second one uh, is a sort of phrase I've been toying around with, with, with Tina as we build the action plan. And we, we've, I'm not sure it's the right phrase, but we've called it advancing the profession. Mm -hmm. So um, 
we've only been chartered for nine years. So in, in the in the sort of the the world of chartered organisations, we're a baby. You know, there there are and and so I think it's really important to remember that we've actually taken great strides in a short time, mm-hmm. but I think we do need to learn from those first nine years and how do we evolve the chartership um we need a clearer definition of the de- of the discipline um i think you know we've got this i guess again it's a strength and a weakness is we you know you can apply human factors in any walk of life but that does mean that as a small organization that we could try and chase too much at the same time so we do need to create some boundary definitions we do need to have that clear understanding of our relationship with other disciplines so a lot of people talk, have talk, talked about for example the relationship between human factors and you user experience for example and there's a really good i think you know, amanda widdison and, and others uh, and amanda's one of our trustees um it created a nice little venn diagram that sort of showed the sort of those sort of specialisms where there there is overlap but there are clear things that are different so um really developing those sort of clearer yeah almost definitions of the discipline you know do we have just one chartership or are there a number of flavors of, of that chartership and then really importantly building and driving a consensus it's no good just say me and the trustees going right this is the definition of human factors that needs to be based on engagement with our members and other in in the profession and then building a consensus on that and also it's a living beast it's not a sort of a you know once and done it's something that will evolve um, and then I want to name check uh, one of your um, recent interviewees as well because the other bit of advancing the professions is, is case studies and um, uh, I think it was only last week actually I listened to your interview with Martin Bromley which I think was from March um, and Martin you know, I haven't met yet but I, I hope to meet is obviously you know he's done this incredible work with the clinical human factors group and, and you know and, and that's an organization we're actually looking to build stronger relationships with I've been having conversations with with Dawn Benson who, who's working there now um, but Martin he used this phrase that if there's one key message I would give to your listeners is to uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase this he said to take half a page of a4 and write down something you've done that has made a difference and what difference has it made and and i think i've actually written this in my um uh, next ergonomist article that will be due out next month i've said if if we can just get 25 percent of our charter members mm-hmm. to respond to that call to action i am the institute would have a you know we've got lots of five around 500 um charter members so my mass was that 125 people if i had 125 strong case studies that would be brilliant so yeah so i just want to echo his call to action and say please chartered members send me those stories and i think that is so strong a thing because we struggle on a day-to-day basis to say um I guess the application of human factors is never as seen as a cost benefit at the beginning because you do the saving up front and therefore you never really truly know it's missing um, until something goes wrong um, and then you have to fix it. Um, and then that's where the true cost is seen. So it's because it's a, um, 
it's almost like what's that cheesy phrase a pump prime or a spend to save um it's you're right having them case studies of showing how it's done will give much more power to people to be able to say this is this is where the value lies i, I think it is and i think I, and I, I know it's challenging and um uh, i'm gonna say i'll almost encourage you to if you there's a snippet from martin's piece that i love where he he did you know he, he, the way he introduced this call to action was to basically say he was asking for something and the answer he got was well if you go and look here yeah. and there and buried there and and and, and he's and he just said that isn't good enough and he's right it isn't good enough and and you know i think we can be creative about that you know and, and forgive me because i'm not an expert in this but it it could almost be with you know you look at the the benchmarking so you might have done something in in your yeah you know, let's say a rail project uh, you know where you did something that stopped something happening but so you aren't able to measure it because it didn't happen on your uh project but maybe the problem that you were addressing happened in a different project that mm -hmm. cost it a lot of money um uh, and i think it, it, it's yeah it, it's just it, it's really important um we yet yeah, we just can't accept as a institute as a profession we can't accept the answer of it's difficult we need to overcome that difficulty yeah. and have those stories that's a really good shout um so you you sort of think that there you know your time with us be it sort of 10 15 years whatever that period of time is um what do you hope to achieve by the end of it what what when do you think job done yeah look it's a it's a good question um and, and also almost it's interesting I, I went through this process when i was at icmm of uh i don't think there's an exact amount of time um you know the way I looked at it there, and I, I'm thinking, you know, almost sort of feel that at a minimum three years, mm. uh, at a at a maximum maybe ten-ish years, but um, but th those things can change because you know if an organisation grows uh, as we plan to do, um, it may well be that the challenges we have in eight years' time are very different to the challenges today and therefore that means that i'm less likely to become stale in my job so so i think there are there are you know th th those sort of um uh, variables but i think the time to leave uh, the optimum time to leave is just before you're getting stale yeah. um and, and it's very hard to judge that but that that's sort of one thing to say but what i want to do so first off address the challenges that we we've just spoken about um it, you know uh, and i think how will we see that so having what i would say a more coherent strategy and ambition for the organization so um you know we in in the council meeting in december i sort of you know i was asked to develop a new strategic plan and in the december um 22 um council meeting sort of five months or so ago i i presented almost like an assessment of the last strategic plan and that strategic plan uh was successful in that it took the organization through that very bumpy ride that COVID was. Um, and it was a, it, it, it did what it needed to do. However, when you looked at it in hindsight, it wasn't measurable enough and it wasn't um, it tangible enough and it, it, it didn't have enough what I would call of those boundary conditions is that, um, you know, in my mind, you know, I've been very lucky when I was at ICMM, they funded me to go uh, uh, to do an exec ed course at Harvard Business School, which is probably the most 
toughest and most fulfilling education experience I went through. But we had a, um, a strategy module there that I really enjoyed. And one of the good learnings from that is a, a, a good strategy tells you both what you should be doing, but also just as importantly, what you should not be doing. Uh, and, and I think if you're being hypercritical of our last strategy, it wasn't strong enough on the what you should not be doing. And because of the um, you know, potential for human, for us as an organization to go in so many directions, I think part of my challenge is to sort of let's be a lot clearer on those boundary conditions. And it may well be there are some things we're not going to do, but there may be some things that we know, yes, we should do them, but we're just not doing them yet because we're yeah. focusing on these other things. So I think building that, if I can hand over to my successor, that more coherent strategy and ambition, I think that I'll be proud of. Secondly, um, uh, and this links back to the data one, what I would call a clear picture of the evolving uh, profession. So I've actually had a conversation last week. So I think, again, I've mentioned this in, in my pieces, I want to do another member survey, we haven't done a survey since uh, 2020. Um, and I in well, I'm just starting to put together the papers for the next council meeting. So uh, everyone, all your listeners can get a heads up on one of the things I, I want to discuss there, but I, I'm putting together a sort of a, a data strategy. And um, let me try and see if I can remember the sort of the, the piece of it. So part of that data strategy is ongoing surveys of our members. So I think, you know, in previous organizations, uh, this is almost my starting point. We may not end up here, but is, is that you should do a, what I would call a set piece uh, regular survey to all of your members, um, maybe once every three years, uh, you know, not, not every year, but certainly at least every five years, shall we say, we, we need to design that. Um, and it focuses on two things, really. One is what value are our members getting out of the Institute, uh, which will then help us make decisions of what we should do more of and what we should do less of, but also getting that almost that zeitgeist of how how is your career in the human factors profession what is difficult for you what's going on um so that you know we have as clear a picture of our sort of state in the world through the eyes of our members so i think that in a member survey the second pillar of the strategy is almost the sort of the quantitative stuff um and there are two aspects of that one is what products and services that we offer are our members using? Do they come to the conference? Are they logging into the website? Are they using the community forums? Are they um, going to, to webinars? And really using that, at, at the entrepreneurs organization, we, we I set up a, a data team in, in the communications team and I hired some data scientists and, and they developed something I, I wasn't expecting that was really powerful. So we did this better job of tracking member engagement. And then and for those of you who understand these data things will understand better than I, but they then created an algorithm that would predict um, whether a member was going to renew or not based on their engagement. And they checked the validity of that algorithm by plugging in the member engagement sort of transactions of all of those members who left the organization. 
and so we we sort of developed the algorithm based on the data we had and then we plotted it against the future and if i remember rightly they they managed to develop it to sort of 95 percent accuracy so right. we which was brilliant and and so uh, we might do something slightly different to that but there's lots you can do with the data you have and then the second part and this is a, a call to action as well is is that i do through i think sort of self-service on on our website we want to build a clearer picture of who our members are um so as we talk about you know the physiological side the psychological side of the profession you know i I was talking to three young professionals from Babcock who, who were at, at the conference and at the stand. Um, really good conversation. And they were talking about, you know, getting people into the profession, how they came into the profession. Um, and f forgive me, I think two of them were psychology uh, undergraduates. Uh, and I can't remember the third one, but, you know, they said, was human factors mentioned on your undergraduate degree yeah. and certainly the two psychology psychology graduates one said yes one said no and so one thing i really want to know is if if the members are willing to share it let's build that picture up what undergraduate degrees did all of our members do and then and and, and then we'll understand some other things and then obviously then the master's degree you know what sectors are they working in but let's build that clearer picture of our membership mm -hmm. um, and then it will help us direct what we do in the future so I think if I can do that and then sorry and then the final element is the sort of almost the external perceptions piece so go back to my time at ICMM we did a, a set piece survey every three years that I, I didn't do the first one but I did the next three that was almost about perceptions of sustainable development about sustainable development amongst leaders in mining and uh not again not exactly the same but i want to do something similar here is is that how can we build the picture of what senior leaders think of human factors in the healthcare service in defense in you know in, in the rail industry so i haven't that's almost a year two year three job but how do we do that external perception so, so if i can hand that over um, and then finally, the international role. So we spoke about for we are a leader internationally. Um, around 25% of our members are outside of the UK. Interestingly, I was surprised by that number. Um, pleasantly surprised, I should say. Um, uh, and now a lot of the, and again, I, I don't know exactly and I want to learn, but I think some of those are people who have a link with the UK. So uh, our first, um, I think always worry when you say the first but I believe our first ever non-UK trustee has just been appointed so Ibrahima Barr Ibrahima is um, a Mauritanian uh, lives in Senegal um, is joining us as a trustee and I'm very excited about that really pleased he's stepped up to to do that now he is obviously not, not from the UK but he actually did study at Cranfield so that he's got a link to the UK in that way and I'd like to understand how many of that 25% of our members outside the UK have that kind of a link or whether they gravitated to us in other ways but the global profession needs to work together um i think you, know, you mentioned in, in your, your your speech uh, at the conference and i learned when i went to the international ergonomics association meeting membership of our sister organizations around the world is dropping on the whole we're sort of stagnating at the moment even though we believe we can grow 
Um, but that's a challenge that we need to address together. So having a clear international role. And the fact is, is that our members, a lot of our members work in global sectors. So they do benefit from engaging with human factors professionals elsewhere in the world. Um, and then, yeah, and, and so if I leave my job handing over a well-oiled machine to my successor, I'll be pleased. Cool. The um, Obviously, we want a well-oiled machine as well, so that, that's clearly in alignment, which is fab. Um, obviously, we our main job as members, I guess, is, is around that human factors piece. And we get very excited about that. Um, but potentially, you know, you don't have a human factors background, uh, even though you've you're, you're taken on the, the, the active learning about maybe uncovering mm. a bit about what we talked about. How do you separate them out, I guess, because it's uh, we you're employed to look after the business side of it. So how, how do you stop us wittering on about what we're wittering on about in order for you to deliver? I'll um, I know I'm sort of tend to tend to have long answers, and this one would be a short answer. I, it's actually very easy. Um, I'm not a human factors specialist. I'm a member organisation specialist, and part of my job is to get the most out of the human factors specialist. So it's almost you know going back to that strategy boundary conditions piece is, is that my job is to um, uh, make it coherent. So when the human factor specialists come to me with a great idea it's almost my job is to go well why are we doing this why now what value is it going to drive for us so yeah, so yeah i find that differentiation just very easy cool so given we, we sort of talked about where you want to be at the, at the end of the time but um but there's hopefully going to be a significant period of time before that mm. how do you know what a good job looks like on a I don't know, like a day-to-day -day or week-by-week -week basis yeah so um th three things i think so financial health and stability i think has to be at the core of it and and we have that and you know that's not down to me that's down to what's happened before me um we're obviously a, we're a charity so we have to you know we have to and i think it's a good thing is we reinvest any money that comes in we reinvest in the organization and the profession so having that day-to-day -day health and stability i think is really important knowing we can pay our staff knowing we can deliver on the projects that we said we can deliver on because we we have the money there um i think that's the number one the second one is happy stakeholders uh does may sound a bit trite but it's really important it's um one of my ex-bosses um you know really encourage me down this route is especially in a member organization is is that there's almost that soft side of it so um when you I, you and i did the first pulse for, uh, podcast last week we were talking about the conference and you know there was a positive vibe at that event you know you couldn't, you couldn't really you couldn't sort of take it and put that in a spreadsheet but there was a positive vibe so happy stakeholders and that and, and what i mean by stakeholders that is you know the trustees that is the members, it's the staff, it's the people we work with outside the organization. Um, and, and almost knowing that they're not unhappy as well is, is part of that. Um, and then finally is having a clear direction and clear ambition. Uh, and on a day-to-day -day basis, having a very good understanding of where you are on the path to getting there. I think, you know, and that's sort of quite a big statement, but, you know, and we're, I don't think we've got that at the moment, but we're working towards it. But if you can do that, 
then you know. And if we take the degree apprenticeship as a sort of a, a very small example of that, is, is I think there is a very clear direction and ambition for that program. And I think we do have a pretty good understanding of where we are on the path to getting there. So the balls in the camp of the universities at the moment mm -hmm. to now develop the courses. Um, there's actually, I've got a job now where it's been on my desk for a couple of weeks, but I think today I'm going to be sending out a survey to the employers in the working group to say, well, how many people are you planning to put through the degree apprenticeship? And so once we get the answer to that, we'll almost start having our ambition of how many apprentices that we want in years one, two and three. So so that's a good microcosm example. But um, but yeah, if, if, if across all the things we're doing, if we have that clear ambition and a good understanding of where we're at, I think you're good. That's, that's really good because you've given us a really good long term, but also um, that short term uh, mm. viewpoint about what we should be looking forward to in in that basically a healthy organization we're going to take a, another quick break and then we're going to get in into your uh, your final three questions so we'll be back right after this just before barry gets to the final three my name's nick rome let me tell you about this technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace and keeping up with what that means in the human factors world can be challenging that's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the Human Factors community. New York State is giving out hundreds of robots as companions for the elderly. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuroergonomics Conference, Team of Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. depends. And now I'm going to send it back over to Barry for the final three. There's going to be a time where I don't giggle at the end of that, but that now is not that time. It still makes me laugh. Um, so we've kind of done the, the serious bit of the interview. So the, what we have now is the final three questions that we ask everyone. Um, so do you have a book or a paper or something that you keep on going back to repeatedly? And if there's not, a, if it's not, it doesn't have to be technical. It could be a fiction book. Um, I have a habit of reading home over and over. So um, what about you? What, what, what's your go-to? Yeah, I'm going to cheat a bit if it's right. I'm going to say a book and two ideas, if that's all right. Okay. Um, and I've got the book. I have, I'm going to put it up to the camera. So the first 90 days. So this is something that I was introduced to when I did the Harvard course. Um, and interestingly, if you saw, there's a bookmark in there that shows my sustainability thing. I hate throwing things away and <laughs> you and and buying things you don't need. So I use old train tickets for my bookmarks and uh, just open this and, it, and I saw it was a, a Heathrow Express ticket, which isn't so good for sustainability because uh, I must have been going on a flight from 2016 that's in this book. But that I read this book again when I started this job or, or you yeah, know skim read it, and it's mm. a really good. Uh, anyone who's starting a new job, I would really encourage you to sort of read that book. It, it just gives you a sort of a roadmap for how to spend your first 90 days in a job. You know, what are the questions to ask, how to build out um, uh, your action plans um, and, and, and how to prioritize. And it's, it's fantastic, uh, a really great book. 
Um, and then two ideas. So one that I've brought uh, to um, the Institute, one is a briefing note. So uh, one of my ex-boss, a guy called Tony Hodge, who was um, uh, the CEO at the ICMM, uh, my second CEO there. I've, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've worked for a lot of great leaders in my time. Um, but he always talked about um, in decision, any decision you're making, there are two parts to it. There's the substance and the process. And he said, you need to look after both of those um, uh, at the same time. And, and you know, and I, I guess I'm a bit of a process junkie, uh, which you probably have seen in, in our interaction. So um, uh, because it's it, it's really important, especially when you, you're having a group make a decision to have clear process on those how how they're contributing as well as the actual topic area um and the briefing note is something he introduced to that organization it's really simple format but uh, when when you're trying to brief people or get a decision made it has a very simple format it has uh top thing that says purpose so what this the top it basically says you know title author of the paper, the date you've done it. And I think it's really important to always write who wrote a document on top of it, because that helps people understand. Then it says purpose. So just a one line purpose. And what is the purpose of the paper? So what decision are you trying to make today? Or are you just bringing people up to speed on something? Then he talked about sorry, the, what's called the background section and, and re really important, the background section, because essentially speaking, that is all the history up until the or the relevant history up until the point you are. And that, again, when you're trying to do consensus decisions, that helps to bring everyone to the same starting point for the conversation at hand. And that is really powerful because if if you start to try and make decisions and everyone in the room is at a different starting point, it is an absolute nightmare. And I've had those nightmares in the past. So that's really important. Then you have the number of sections that talk about the decision or what you have at hand. And then at the end, there's just a final is almost like an action required or a next step. So it's a really simple format that can be used for any, any kind of decision you're making and and I see you nodding your head because I yeah I think you know that the council have found that format really useful mm -hmm. uh, since we've introduced it late last year. Uh, and then the other idea, it's a, a very simple, but again picked up from Harvard was uh, they, I did an exercise there. And I, I can't say, but I, I don't go back to it, but I, I remember it, and it was really powerful. It, it was almost a, a thing about uh, it, they it said to sort of on a little graph to plot out your strengths and weaknesses across a sort of few competencies, mm -hmm. um, and then. The, the the professor there, when we were talking about it he, he said when you look at your own personal development when we look at our own strengths and weaknesses it goes a mistake a lot of us do is is that we try and go right we need to get everything up to the same level and he said no what you need to do is you need to get your weaknesses up to a, a good enough level but to be the best you can be is is that whilst you're bringing your weaknesses up to a sort of a let's say competent level the same time you should be taking your strengths up to an even to a soaring level and you can have more impact that way and, and um so that's already always stuck with me so even though i don't go back to it it's yeah. always in, in the back of my mind when i think about where i need to, to improve cool um so if you could go back in time and whatever time suits you but what advice would you give a younger ben yes 
this made me laugh when I was thinking about this one. So there are a few sort of specific um, uh, things I, I could think of, and maybe some that I wouldn't want to sort of say to a, to a public <laughs> audience. But but I, I think I'd boil it down to look after your mental and physical well-being. We only have one body. We only have one brain. If they are functioning well, the decisions you make are easier to take, and they're more likely to be the right ones. And I, I really believe that it's, um, uh, you know, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. So my um, uh, godfather now sort of passed away. Um, uh, it's actually his his wife gave me good advice. I, I did because it's quite amusing is that uh, for those of you who like their films, um, Michael was my godfather in my childhood would say the same thing to me every time we met. He'd go, Benjamin, I have one word of advice for you plastics um and those of you like your film it, it, it's, it's irrelevant but it it's it's um taken from the graduate uh it's um so dustin hoffman's character is called benjamin and his godfather says that to him early in the film he was you know he said plastic so that that was a sort of a joke but actually the, the advice i got was was from his wife jennifer i actually saw her recently at my dad's 80th birthday it was lovely to catch up with her um in my team she would constantly say to me stop slouching you'll regret it when you're older. I didn't stop slouching and I did regret it when I got older. I, you know, I suffered from a, a, a bad back. Um, and then two other examples. The other, second one is that um, when I was at university, I loved playing sport when I was young, um, but I didn't have the most optimum lifestyle when I was at university, shall we say. I, I, I was enjoying life and I wasn't very fit and I used to get really frustrated. I played, I was, I was you know, so the best player in the team, I was a good player in the team I played for, or I played with actually with a, with, um, didn't play for a university, you know, I played with a local hospital team actually, sort of, um, which was good fun. But I would almost always get substituted off after about 60 minutes and that's because I was out of breath. And, um, and, but we had one year, a guy came and did fitness training with us one year and he did this thing, he made us run around the playing fields. I think there was about five or six football pitches I hate doing endurance health stuff, but he did this really clever thing was he made us run around. He said, right, we're going to do one lap. And he said, uh, when we get back, I'm going to ask you a few questions about things you've seen on the way around. And if you get them right, we won't run around again. But if you get them wrong, we're going to run around again. And the only guy who got the questions right was the fittest person in our team. Uh, he was a Mike as well, actually. And, and, um, and, it was a really good lesson for me because if if you are physically on top of your game you're more likely to be mentally on top of your game and i think that was really important and then the final one and this is especially for me because uh, you know we all suffer from varying levels of trauma stress anxiety in our life and when you're going through those talk to someone uh you know and i've not done enough of that so i've done it more in my older years but certainly in my teens and my 20s um i and in even my 30s as well I, you know i had to deal with a very traumatic sort of health event not myself but my, my my wife at the time and i bottled that up too much at the time and i wish i'd spoken to people so when you're stressed or anxious however intense it is talk to someone trusted it will help you Absolutely echo that one. Um, 
so fast forward then to many years ahead and you you decide to retire um and and do whatever it is you're going to do when you retire what are the um what would you like to be remembered for yeah so this is a good one as well it's almost a, a, a similar one is is that it's um and i guess it's because of my sort of focus on process more is is that there's no thing i don't necessarily want to be remembered for delivering something or invented something but um when i was thinking about this question the first thing i thought is i want my children to remember me fondly and you know when i'm long gone and they're living their lives when they think back to what i brought for them was is that i supported them and i helped them become the people that they are and hopefully the good people that they are um and i think you know in the, my work life i think you know being a good person having energy and making a contribution people remember that about me when I come into their minds again, um, that will make me happy. Brilliant. Ben, thank you ever so much for taking the time out with us and being so open and sharing with what your, uh, with, you know, your, your personal background, but also what your aims and ambitions are for, um, for your time with us in the CIHF. What, if people want to get in touch with you um, and either, you know, connect with you and, or ask you any questions or just generally say hi, how would they go around doing that? Yeah, look, the easiest way is LinkedIn. I, I do go on LinkedIn most days. So, you know, uh, connect with me or, um, you know, send me a message, uh, do that way. But you can also um, get hold of me via the, um, uh, via the Institute's website, uh, ergonomics.org.uk, or uh, send me an email. So I'm yeah, b.peachy at ergonomics.org.uk. Um, and the peachy, I always say to people, it, it, common to miss the E out. So it's the fruit peach, then EY. And the irony is that he, when we recently did the pulse, then um, Ben actually spent that out, spelled that out during his um, during the recording. I come to master it afterwards and still managed to spell it wrong myself. So, um, yes, all, all of them contact details will be in the show notes of this episode. So, Ben, thank you ever so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And thank you um, for watching and for listening wherever you're watching and listening where you are. And we hope to see you for the next episode. Thanks a lot, Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human the Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See time. You next and remember, it's more than just common sense. word the jc penny friends and family sale is back and this week we're passing the savings on to you use your extra 30 percent off coupon to prep your home and style your family for easter that's extra savings on top of our great low prices plus share your coupon with everyone you know and love it's always better when we save together jc penny make everybody count offer valid 311 through 317 exclusion supply see store or jcp.com for details everybody.